The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Seems like a good time to talk about this open-heartedness or generosity of the heart. Some of you were here maybe on Sunday. We did our quarterly community gathering where we recite the Buddhist refuges and precepts. And uh, most of you know, or at least some of you know, that one of the lay precepts, the precepts, the ethical guidelines for lay people in the Buddhist tradition, the second one is undertaking the training to refrain from taking what's not freely offered, not freely given to us. And, you know, we can see it sim simplistically as just not stealing, understanding that stealing makes the mind, the heart tight and causes problems for ourselves and for others. But there's a whole positive side to that training. So part of it, the training is refraining from doing what's wrong, but there's a positive side of developing abundance or developing contentment, developing generosity. And not just generosity in terms of supporting worthy organizations or taking care of people, but a, a more complete or integrated generosity. So it's just how we are in the world, how we relate in the world. There's a word in English that's not used to much magnanimity, magnanimous heart, maybe you've heard it, this greatness of heart. And uh, mostly what we know pretty clearly are those moments when our heart isn't very great. You know, we're feeling stingy, we're feeling needy. What we notice, what we really are focused on are all the ways that life has betrayed us or hasn't given us what we think we need, what we want, what we deserve. Think about even today, all the little and big ways maybe we felt betrayed. I mean, we can feel betrayed by our body, like if our knee hurts, it's like betraying us. Or we bought something and now it's broken, we have to replace it. You know, we feel betrayed. Oh, it only lasted three years or two years or whatever. You can feel betrayed by the weather. You feel betrayed by our food. It doesn't taste as good as the last time I made it. It's not fair. I did everything right. So there's so many reasons for the heart to get tight and narrow, constricted in this this neediness or this sense of lacking. Isn't that that's such a common place for our minds to reside in the feeling of lacking, not having enough, things not being good enough. I mentioned on Sunday, you know, I remember times as a kid, it was quite, quite strong as a seven, eight-year-old around Christmas time and and just feeling this intense pain of expectation. And in an even greater way, the pain was about knowing that my expectations are not going to be met. You know that feeling? It wasn't my parents in Santa Claus was, you know, compared to a lot of people, it was great. But, you know, our mind has the capacity to want and to imagine things that aren't going to happen. And then we can feel betrayed, we can feel screwed by life, by Santa Claus. And I remember feeling <laughs> like the whole thing wasn't even worth it. Even though, I, in a way, I wanted those things, the, the pleasantness of getting those things somehow didn't compensate for the 
the pain of not getting what I want and just the disappointment I just remember that as a, a very common pain in my childhood and it was definitely a feeling of being betrayed I even felt betrayed by you know being brought up in a way where I had certain I had internalized certain ethical standards I remember in seventh grade something I think it was seventh grade you know when people start acting out <laughs> sexually and with drugs and other kinds of so-called bad behavior and um, it just that that conflict of, of uh, again feeling like wanting wanting to sort of experiment wanting to sort of do things that I wasn't supposed to do but on the same time at the same time feeling trapped by uh, this maybe fear I guess most mostly it was just fear fear of being caught fear of being a bad boy so we often move through life in a constricted way even if we on from the outside look like we're successful the heart doesn't feel released doesn't feel generous doesn't feel wholehearted doesn't feel even committed it's all about you know negotiating manipulating getting through struggling hoping to avoid this pitfall that pitfall all of that is tight and it's so it's so commonplace that it doesn't surprise us that we have this attitude and what it surprises us when <clears throat> conditions arise that that whole world view falls apart for a while you know a set of really beautiful or positive events happen maybe in sequence with enough force that we just all of a sudden the need to struggle the need to feel betrayed it disappears for a while in the mind a friend uh, here at common ground somebody who comes here uh, wrote down she was here at the Sunday night when we had this same <coughs> talk and discussion and then later she was at cup foods buying some things and she was the one cup foods just down the street here some of you probably have gone there and it's you know it's a big inner city grocery store it's it's a bit of a zoo <laughs> and uh, so you're sitting in line getting what she needed in line and uh, the person behind her said oh my god <laughs> and so this person turns around and the woman handed her a card that some stranger had just given her a card just walked up to her handed her a car card so she handed it to this woman she looks at it and there was this sweet little note scribbled in uh, saying see she quoted it here I've been blessed this year and the only right thing to do is pass my blessing on to others along to others Merry Christmas and there was a crisp $50 bill in there and just seeing there this woman who got that who received that I uh, had a little girl and they were just so happy and then later the woman started to cry and it's just sort of uh, you know because you know how that being in the grocery store and you know what line to go in and <laughs> I mean I know it can be cheery too but <laughs> and there's just so many hooks there you know do you pick up people magazine or not or do you look at people and judge them or not you know how that is and I'm not I'm glad I'm not that person <laughs> you know that's how we make ourselves feel better or God I wish I were that person or had his or her number or something <laughs> but all of that is tight but then something happens and it's like we get invited into this different universe it's like things literally flip and all of a sudden it feels possible to be to have a generous heart and now the whole purpose 
of being in that moment is about loving, about caring, about, we just want to, you know, it's like there's an abundance of goodness, of good energy, or whatever you want to call it, and we just want to play in it and sort of be part of that movement of goodness. It brings the good out of everybody. I'm sure, every, hopefully, everybody has had many of these moments in their lives. And often it happens where it's most obvious when it flips like this, when you're in an environment and something happens and then the attitude changes. Even this happens sometimes uh, when there's a, a bit of a crisis, like really bad weather, and all of a sudden everybody's nice. Have you noticed? Have you had those kind of experiences? And people are neighborly, and uh, it just can bring the, the good out in people. So we know this is a possibility because most of us have seen it in ourselves, seen it in others. And then the question is, well, what actually is in the way of living with a magnanimous heart all the time? What would that feel and look like? What are we afraid of? Like, what would be the danger in having living with this generous heart? Like, I think maybe we're afraid we're not going to take care of ourselves, but you know, when that heart is really operating, we do take care of ourselves. That love, that generosity shines on us as much as it shines on those people around us. You know, I'm going to take you home and make you soup. <laughs> you know, let's go. I do that. I feel that actually uh, over the years. I find that more and more. It's like uh, just a, an authentic question, well, how can I take care of you? You know, how can I take care of this body, this mind? You know, and I'll, I'll, I won't just be reflexive, you know, I'm going to go get chocolate. But I'll really think, you know, what would that be like to go get chocolate? How would that be? Would that work for you? Do you want a bath? Do you need soup? Do you just need to lie down for a while? How can I really take care of you? And the same way that we would do for a little kid that maybe was lost and needed our help or, you know, we'd listen and we'd respond from that place of listening. Like, we care enough to really show up and listen. And you know how it is, sometimes we don't want to really show up, we want to help the person, but we don't want the person to tell us how they need help, <laughs> you know. I know what I know what you need, or more truthfully, I know what I'm ready to give you. So let me just give you that and get it over with, so I can get on to the next thing. Well, that's that's not a magnanimous heart. That's you know just more of the same. Some of you know Achan Cha, a very well-known Thai meditation teacher, Buddhist monk, who died in the early 90s. He said, if you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you have complete freedom and peace, unconditional release of the heart. And this is, this is like how we can experiment with life. Just little by little, we can experiment <clears throat> with this magnanimous heart. First, of course, you know, we always learn best where it's easy, places where we feel safe, where everybody else is already magnanimous, and so we, we can just sort of tune into the, the nice energy and just see how that feels. We let go a little. But then, you know, when we get more and more confidence, we can begin to practice a little when all of the particular conditions are telling us to be tight. Have you had that experience where somebody comes at you with some negative energy, judgment, or trying to shame you, or uh, trying to manipulate you, and in a way you have every right to do one of those zingers? You know, whether the zinger is just to sort of be cold and distant, or the zinger is to put the person in their place. But somehow you don't, you decide for whatever reason, even though you have every reason to put that person in their place or shut yourself off from them, 
you don't, you know. It's like the mind, it, it uh, doesn't need to be in that tight, narrow place. There's a great line in one of Havisa's poems. I'll have to paraphrase it, but it's, Hafiz is a famous Persian poet from 800 years ago or so. And something like, fear is the you know, worst room in the house. I'd like to see you in, with better living accommodations or something like that. And that's like what we can feel for ourselves. You know, stinginess, fear, greediness, hatred. These are not very livable abodes. This is not where we, this is not what we wish for ourselves and it's not what we wish for others. And I think this is the birthplace of this magnanimous heart, this great heart. When we realize how easy it is for us suffering beings, human beings, to suffer. It's just so easy for us to get into contracted states, fearful states, needy states. So knowing that, knowing how easy it is, even for people like us, most of us who are in, have pretty favorable conditions, even for us it's easy to abide in constricted states, heavy states of mind. So knowing that, it, it kind of breaks our heart and we wish for ourselves, you know, may you be free, may I be free of these constricted states. Just that caring is a step, it's, that's the flip. As soon as we care about how easy it is to be in suffering states, stressful states, then that's a magnanimous place. Oh, I care about all of this suffering, all, all of this confusion, all of our tendencies to get into narrow, tight places. I care about this. That's not a narrow, tight place, is it? That's a beautiful place. You know, it's like when we're in traffic and most people are in a tight, narrow place. So what are we going to do? Are we going to fall in line with everybody else and get in a narrow, tight place? Or are we going to let all of that stress break our heart a little and respond with this great heart? Ah, this is suffering. All these human beings, every single one of us wants to be happy, yet most of us right now are acting, relating in ways that are, that's creating stress. This is unfortunate, and I care about this tragedy. I care about this unnecessary suffering. May we all find a way to be free of this suffering. That's a beautiful wish, and you see it, it reverses the flow of the heart. When we're in a tight, narrow place, it's as if we're trying to feed something that can't be fed. In Buddhism, there's the image of the hungry ghost. My wife is a choreographer, and uh, she once did this great evening-length show called Hunger Ghost, based on this um, Buddhist archetype and a few other Buddhist archetypes. And uh, the hungry ghost has this big belly and a mouth the size of a pinhole. So the idea is this amazing appetite, but a very little capacity to appease the appetite. So, of course, it would, this being, this hungry ghost, would be constantly hunger, hungry, never able to take care of its hunger. And every one of us, of course, we have that hungry ghost inside of us. Sometimes it gets activated more than other times. You know, where it doesn't matter, we just can't get enough. We can't, you know, it can be true in terms of temperature, can't get warm enough, can't get cool enough, can be true in terms of food. We can have this sort of chronic neediness in terms of love and the need for affection. No matter how much somebody might love us or express affection, it's like not enough. We need more. There's no satisfaction. And the problem isn't that we're not getting enough. 
the problem is the way the mind is conceiving the problem. For example, if I conceive of this huge feeling, experience of hollowness, emptiness, lack, lacking, right? Then if my mind knows that experience, well, it's actually not real. It's something I've created in my mind. When we feel really alienated and apart, we may think superficially, it may feel like that's actually how the world is for me, but it's just something we've created in the mind. So you see, no matter what happens around us, like how much people care or love us, it's not changing what we've created. We created it, the mind has to let go of it. That's the only way to go beyond the experience of lack or feeling not enough, feeling stingy or scarce, like scarcity. The mind has to abandon that view. That's why you can have people who are incredibly wealthy who have this very strong feeling of lack. I was talking to a couple of my Dharma friends. Doug McGill was one of them. He's the leader at the Rochester, Minnesota community, uh, practice community. They have a meditation center right by Mayo Clinic, downtown Rochester, that they started maybe eight years ago. So Doug came up and we were having a conversation over lunch and and uh, what was the story he was telling? Mm, just lost it. It'll probably come back to me. Just the you know just that experience of uh, another example of a hungry ghost, and that, that kind of chronic neediness that we all find in different places of our life. Just to begin to question that view. You know, and there's different ways to question to, or to flip the mind. Like, for example, the, one of the real classic ways that everybody who meditates has to learn. When we're sitting, for example, and there's knee pain, or there's just a more generic restlessness in the body or in the mind, or real heaviness, sleepiness. Well, if we're trying to make it go away, we're in that restless, neurotic, struggling place. We feel needy, don't we? Tight, like, oh, if only I can get rid of this restlessness, then I can have a good meditation. But a magnanimous heart is the heart that says, yes, oh yes, the restlessness is like this. Now what kind of heart, what kind of mind state can actually honestly say yes to restlessness or knee pain or boredom. Well, that's a big, beautiful heart view or mind state. The mind that can say yes, well, it's like this. Yes. And part of that magnanimous state of mind or view is it's this wisdom that understands that given these innumerable causes and conditions, this moment can't be other than the way it is right now. So the habit to second guess disappears, at least for a while. Like, well, of course it's this way. So you could just practice that now, you know, with the life, the life circumstance that's arising for you right now, this experience of the body, this experience of the mind, this life situation as we understand it. You know, when we say yes, it isn't a weak, feeble yes. It's really arising out of a wisdom that understands, actually, it really is this way now. And even if part of what I'm understanding is, is manufactured by my thoughts about things, that's actually how it is. <laughs> you know, like part of how it is, is my view. So let's say I have a bad view or a narrow view. But we can open to that in a really generous way. Wow, this is how it is. I'm really afraid. I'm feeling really needy. I'm really lonely. But you see, it changes it. 
to to sort of take the loneliness and run is to be in a constricted type place. To see the loneliness and say, yeah, yep, it feels like this. And to, in a sense, give it enough space for loneliness to really express itself, to bloom as an emotional, mental experience. You know, whoa, it's this big. How big is it? Whoa, whoa, it's this big. Because we're not restricting it. We're not denying it. We're not trying to control it. We're letting it blossom. Oh, loneliness is really like this. Whew. And the funny thing is, by really, by saying yes to our experience, we start to feel enlivened by life. Anytime we're saying no, that's what we call constriction or grasping, and it, in a sense, uh, it's squeezing life energy. So we feel dead. <laughs> Literally, we start to feel dead when we're saying no to our life as it actually is. Because it's insane to say no to what's already true. It just doesn't make sense. It isn't helpful in any way to say no to something that already is. All it does is create the squeeze that we call suffering or dukkha in Buddhism. The squeeze on the heart. And saying yes is the release of that squeeze. And we feel alive. It's like we can, you know, even use our imagination like being on our deathbed or in the middle of a breakup or losing a job or just some kind of difficult, painful experience. But feel, imagine how alive we could be if the mind could abandon all of its ideas that this is not supposed to be this way. In a way, I know it sounds almost like a cliche to say to embrace it, because we hear that. But embracing isn't something we use, that concept isn't something we use to beat ourselves up, like I should be embracing my life, but I can't. You know? And then it's just another way to hate ourselves or to hate life. So we have to understand this in terms of an actual movement of the heart like something that the heart has the capacity to do that we don't I don't actually have to do it I just have to remember that it's possible like when I have pain in my body it's not that I have to accept the pain in my body it's more of a realization I'm realizing the capacity of the mind to know This is another way of thinking about this, you know, the difference between constriction and the generosity of the heart, the mag, uh, magnanimous heart, is when we take the, when the mind rests in knowing or rests in openness, then that's a very great place. When the mind gets attached clings to the particular objects. So I have this experience and I feel shame and my mind gets identified with the shame, then things are constricted. So that's why there's such an emphasis in Buddhist practice to realize this refuge of knowing, to practice over and over again, to practice when we're walking from our car to our office, to practice every morning watching the breath go in and out, to practice when we're washing the dishes. We're practicing realizing, it's a realization, it's an awakening moment where we realize this is being known. So we're, the mind is moving from its fixation on the particular object that's being known, like the washing and, you know, why do I have to wash the dishes? So the mind is either fixated on the activity and doing it right and getting it done, or it's fixated on some thought about why me, why do I have to do the dishes, why didn't I buy a dishwasher when we just did a kitchen renovation and we decided not to get a dishwasher, you know? <laughs> and we had a bunch of people over last night, and then it occurred to me, well, <laughs> why was it that we didn't get a dishwasher? 
So, or we could be aware that it's being known. Like if there is a thought about why didn't we get a dishwasher, that thought is being known. Or if we're feeling the warmth of the water and the, hearing the splashing and is being known. See, to remember, to realize the knowing brings that fullness, that generosity, because it's healing. In the same way that it's fragmenting, alienated, when the mind gets identified with objects, mental objects, physical objects, it doesn't really matter what the object is, even beautiful objects. Whenever the mind gets identified with an object, it's in a limited state. It's limited itself. It's a little bit like that story in the Old Testament, that Genesis story, where Adam and Eve eat the apple, and they become limited by eating that apple, right? They're in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, one with everything, happy, alive, naked, right? Sort of their life there is uncluttered, uncluttered by problems, personal problems. But they want to own the tree of knowledge or whatever, you know, I forget exactly how it's translated that the apple represents personal knowledge, right? They want it. Greed. <laughs> so they take birth, they eat it, and they take birth as alienated, separate beings that feel all of a sudden that they're naked because they're apart. And this is what we do actually moment to moment. But it can be not done moment to moment too. We can take refuge in being or knowing. So we have this every moment in a sense, we have this choice. Ignorance or wisdom, that's an easy way to remember it. So ignorance means the mind is allowed to fixate, to get identified or attached with the particular objects including, like I said, even relatively wholesome objects like, oh, my sit's going really well. And we get identified with that thought. And then we take birth in a narrow, constricted, we have a, a moment of narrowness and constrictedness as soon as the mind gets identified with that thought. But in the next moment, we can realize the narrowness and constrictedness and to just realize that that narrowness and constrictedness is being known in the vast mystery of the present moment. So in that great vastness, in that experience of knowing, see, knowing itself can't be constricted or defined in any way. If it is, it becomes an object, and that's not knowing. Does that make sense? So there is this capacity to be free. It's just a matter of what the mind is allowed to do. Is it allowed to attach and fixate and identify with something? Or is it uh, reverting to its natural, open, unrestricted state. Every moment it's possible. So no matter how dark a moment it is, no matter how much we've whipped up some constricted state of mind, deep, painful loneliness, deep state of wanting revenge or resentment, and we really kind of got it whipped up and it's big, it, as soon as the mind realizes this is being known, it has that possibility of releasing. It's releasing its fixation. The mind is releasing its fixation because it's, it has enough perspective to understand it's not needed. It's unnecessary. It remembers the possibility of freedom. But this release means that the heart is willing to let this moment be the way that it is. It's not, it doesn't mean that we're not, the body-mind isn't going to participate. It just means this moment is already this way. So and if, if in this moment I'm feeling lonely, then to not get identified, but just to be aware, just to be present with the loneliness, it doesn't make the loneliness worse. It may feel that way because we're not distracting ourselves from the way that it is. But the loneliness was the way that it was, and it is the way that it is. You know, nothing's changed, except now the mind isn't struggling with it. And then loneliness gets to do what all things do. 
it blooms and then it falls away. All phenomena, mental and physical, come and go. So if we're not, if the mind isn't fixing on it, identifying with it, it will express its natural movement coming and going, arising and passing. Actually, loneliness and other afflicted states are much more workable when we see that they're alive with movement. It's when it feels fixed as this is who I am. I'm a lonely person. This knee pain is who I am. Then it's totally intolerable. It's really hard to bear. But when we realize that the pain is alive with coming and going, it's whether it's emotional pain or physical pain, it's much more workable. And faith can arise. Faith in knowing and being as opposed to identifying with objects. So I'll leave it so we have some time to hear from each other. It'd be nice to hear some stories about when you realize that at a particular moment this arising of the magnanimous heart, this greatness of heart, the mind that released its fixations, just let things be, and how creative you were in those moments, how uh, you were able to respond appropriately, nimbly, to the particular situation in a way that maybe you couldn't have if the mind were more attached or identified. And also it would be nice to hear from people sharing moments when the mind was in that really dark, constricted place and how it, it always arises when the mind is very much identified or attached to objects, objects of mind, objects, physical objects, taking stuff personally. And if you decide to speak up, please say your name. Yeah. <clears throat> Andrew, and uh, the idea of getting fixed and taking things personally and, and not being magnanimous. Recently, we had a bunch of colleagues leave, and one colleague's phone was blinking, who left, departed, no longer worked at where I work, and his phone message was blinking. There's nothing I could do to make that phone stop blinking, uh, but it says there's a message. And so, Another colleague, we'll call her Susie, kept coming up to me three times on three separate occasions saying, oh, the phone's blinking. Each time I'd say, I can't do anything about that. Sorry. Finally, I got so frustrated on the third time, I unplugged the phone. And a month later, uh, we're in a meeting, and uh, this was just a week ago, and uh, Susie goes in front of everyone, you know, that, that phone was blinking. <laughs> phone's unplugged. It's been unplugged for a month. And I was so irritated at her for calling me out in this meeting that was, just seemed inappropriate and I really got fixated and angry uh, that she would feel that way. And then uh, on Monday, uh, so that happened on Friday, on Monday, uh, unexpectedly, we no one in the office knew it, but uh, she was fired. And in that unexpected kind of naked feeling, I realized that my anger and fixation was, was just on her actions and not everything that was going on with her. And there was a lot. And it allowed me to be more magnanimous, I guess, in my reflections and, uh, and how I communicate with her now. Um, as a former staff. Thanks for sharing that. And there's a lot in your story. I mean, just in a, a kind of a simple way, you know, when something's bothersome, like there's been a strange high screech, some of you sit in the morning, maybe have heard it, and it's on this building uh, just across the street, and there's a charter school there, and there must be something under ventilation, and it's, you can hear it, you know, in this room. And we've called and, and left a message. But the thing is, when there's something like that, what happens is the mind internalizes. So the mind's remembering there's a problem. Regardless of whether that sound in that moment is actually irritating, the thought that there's a problem is irritating. And that continues. Even when you unplugged the phone, she was still irritated, you know? And then, 
Yeah, and then not only that though, it's contagious. So when somebody's irritated, like when I'm irritated about my wife not doing something at the house, right? And, uh, you know, irritate, I'm not going to do it, I'm going to wait, but it irritates me that it's not done. You know, I could just do it, it would take about two seconds, but no. I'm like, you know. But then, of course, my irritation makes her irritated. And it's like wildfire. You know, we create the world that we live in. And then, fortunately, either we bump into some teachings or there's, like in your case, Andrew, there's a, something flips it, you know, because that information that she was fired, all of a sudden, that was strong enough information to crack, you know, your mind's fixation. And all of a sudden, you could realize a different way of relating. It didn't make sense to identify with the irritation. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, Kian. Um, so I had an experience last night that brought about a lot of sorrow and all day during work today. It's just shutting it down, shutting it down, shutting it down. So practice sitting tonight was really interesting. Um, thinking about the heart and what is the heart. Because when I was sitting, opening to just allowing the sensation of sorrow and it was very strong and, you know I could identify the pressure the you know various sensations but then with the challenge of thinking about having an open heart um, it was really hard to figure out what that meant um, due to the attachments of wanting that uh, sensation of openness to actually physically be in this area of my body and it was really interesting because um, once I could relax into it, I started to notice that um, being open to the sorrow, I was actually feeling the sensation, and this was surprising to me, um, in my arms. And it was interesting because my joking processing mind was like, oh, maybe that's why we always say, like, he wears his heart on his sleeve. <laughs> um, but it led to being able to um, have an open heart to next thing that evolved in my state, which was um, all of a sudden I noticed a sensation, that energy, whatever you know, would call it, uh, it just all pulled away. And I was, you know, my processing mind was like, well, that's interesting. What is that about? And I realized that I was hungry. Um, and it was the first time that I was ever open, able to open up to being hangry, hungry slash angry, because usually I, you know, shut down. <laughs> Um, in those moments, and it's really hard to have an open heart in those moments. So yeah, it's like a new world. Yeah, it is. It was really yeah. you know, it also gave me such delight in that moment. So yeah. it was interesting, but it also did bring up that question of um, heart. What does that mean? And I'd be interested. Yeah. Well, we you know we use that word in different ways, but the thing about our experience, it isn't. It isn't broken up like we tend to think it is. Like if you check right now with your experience, it's just one thing, right? Our experience. Now we we can describe it as the body experience, the mind, the mind experience, the heart, the mind, the body. But actually, when we honestly look, there's just this. You know, this experience. And in this experience, sometimes we realize, you know, as we're aware of this experience, sometimes we realize that there's suffering. And sometimes we realize that there's happiness, right? So where does that happiness, that suffering, where is it being known? Well, that's the heart. The heart is where suffering and happiness is known, which is here, you know, this. And I wouldn't make it more complicated than that. Now, I think there can be advantages to sort of using the actual heart center, that that's not where suffering actually is, that it can be a useful beginning to feel the heart center. But it's really the experience here and now that there is suffering or that there's happiness here and now. And it's knowing directly that experience of happiness or suffering here and now 
that is where the heart is. It's the center. You know, the center to this moment, this mind-body experience. Thanks for sharing, Kian. That's helpful. Yeah. And Jeff, um, I feel like I've gotten fairly comfortable um, when feelings come up like sadness or loneliness or hunger of just kind of stepping aside and looking at it and saying, okay, what it is, and allowing myself to feel it. Um, it's a lot harder with frustration and anger. Do you have any thoughts on why it can be so well, you don't really need to know why. You just need to gain confidence. And you know, the way we gain confidence is instead of <clears throat> um, just uh, noticing the places where we're not yet able to open, find something that's not quite as intense and gain some confidence or skill there. You know, the little anger. You said it was anger that was more challenging? Yeah, so begin to um, be very, um, sensitive to sort of mild irritations, mild anger, before it really gets established in the mind, in the body. And practice there, see if you can open to that, little frustrations, little resentments. And just get interested, like uh, make a resolve in the morning, even before you get out of bed, like say literally, say something like this in your mind with real sincerity. May I learn one or two things about anger that I have yet to learn or see in the mind. Like you want to be a, a, a really good student about how this comes and how it can be flipped, how we, the mind can go from being fixated on this irritant, which would be on the way to anger, and then realize that that's being known. And that flips, like there's a whole new attitude. Oh, I get it. It's like there's this understanding of this process that leads onward toward real suffering and that it's optional. Now in that moment there may be so much momentum you're still going to get angry in a big way that all of a sudden the mind also understands that there's an option and maybe today I can't realize that option but someday and maybe today all I can do is that awareness that anger is happening that the mind is angry and that mind is getting sucked in and getting identified that even though there's just a little thread of awareness, but mostly there's attachment, that alleviates or that modifies the suffering to some degree. And each day, practicing that way, we gain skill. So that even in big storms, there can be some real space. And we'll get experiences where the, the sort of very intense anger can arise that it doesn't really find footing. So it might get really big, as big as it ever has gotten, but it doesn't have any staying power, so it disappears very quickly. So it's uh, somebody who's practiced a lot doesn't mean they don't get angry or whatever their particular afflictive mind state might be, but that those afflictive states tend not to get much footing. So they may flash, but then fall apart. And then there's like less and less residue. So I might get really defensive in a moment, and then I and then my mind might be balanced in a, in 30 seconds. Aware that you know 30 seconds ago I was really imbalanced and I might have said inappropriate things, and but now the mind is balanced, and so in that relatively balanced state it can fix any problems that arose because of having been unskillful the the moment before. Big step. We have time for maybe one more. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Naya. And I had a question about aversion and how we experiencing a lot of grief. A lot of grief? Especially during the holidays. And how it can get so intense at odd times, like at work. And you're trying to talk yourself confident or just snap out of it so that you can function. And is that a version or is that being practical? Well, you'd have to find out for yourself. There is a place for redirection, but it's a limited strategy. Because when, we're, when we feel the need to redirect the mind, like, don't go there, honey, because, because it's a trap, you know, and you know it's just going to snowball 
and then all of a sudden you won't be able to be functional because the grief will be so big. But in a way, the fear of grief makes it bigger. You know, if we feel I have to defend myself from it, that resistance makes it a bigger thing, makes it scarier, and in a funny way more attractive for the mind, more easy for the mind to get lost in it. So, but there, there, there is way, there are ways rather, to skillfully redirect the mind. But you just have to be careful because it can reinforce it by being afraid of it, it makes it bigger. So that's why when the mind is balanced enough, the emphasis is more on uh, expressing non-fear with the grief. Like, including it. Yes, you have a right to be here. Of course. It's natural for human beings to feel grief. There's loss in life, and the appropriate emotion when there's loss is the feeling of grief. That's what we call the pain of loss. It's grief, and it's like this. But you might be adding something extra, which is some old belief that the pain of loss or grief is dangerous or somehow destructive for the heart. Is that actually true? Probably what's true, my guess is that resisting the pain is destructive. But the pain itself is not destructive. You might find that actually being open to the pain of loss, to grief, is enlivening. It, it evokes compassion. And because the mind isn't uh, depending on a constricted defensive stance, it can actually be enlivened. Because what is grief? It's life energy. That emotion of, that, that comes out of the pain of loss, it's just a movement of life energy. It's enlivening. But resisting it or being afraid of it or thinking I can't handle it, that squeezes the heart, squeezes life. And so we feel, and then we get confused by that squeeze. We think it's the pain of loss that's causing the squeeze, but it's our fear of the pain of loss that's causing the problem. So it's easy to see why we get confused. So that's why in Buddhist, Buddhist practice, there's an emphasis on, on under, better understanding what's going on, but not to deal with it reflexively because we're dealing with it with limited understanding. We don't really understand what's going on, so our strategy isn't going to be very effective. So we emphasize more on seeing clearly what's going on than immediately doing something to fix the situation. Thanks, Naya, is it you? Thanks, Naya. So we need to leave it here. I wanted to save a few minutes at the end. Uh, a number of you know that once a month, Either I or some community member shares something about the way the center works and this really beautiful deep practice of, we call it dana. It's the word for generosity. Kim, you wanna? I thought you forgot. Uh, <laughs> no, you're not off the hook. Some of you maybe know Kim Clay. She's a longtime community leader and member and uh, one of our regular cooks and managers for our residential retreats. And so she's going to talk for a couple minutes about uh, generosity at the center here. Two hours? <laughs> okay, 